Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Human Touch. Welcome to those of you who are here in the Zoom room and those of you who are watching live stream on YouTube. Uh, thanks for coming. We're so glad you're here. This is Human Touch from Interact Studio, as I said, and this is the place where we feature authentic people who are doing the kind of work that makes the world a better place. This morning's a real treat for me because Dr. Pam Oliver is one of the most respected and loved physicians at Novant Health, and she's also a personal friend to me and to Interact. So it's a a really wonderful morning. And listen, she didn't want me to fuss about her in this intro, but I gotta tell you who she is. So I'm gonna do it anyway. Uh, Pam's an EVP, of course, serving on the executive leadership team at Novant Health. And she's also president of the Physicians Network. She is the first woman and physician of color to do that. And she oversees in that role, she oversees 620 clinical sites and 2,800 physicians. Wow. She is a North Carolina gal. She grew up in Rocky Mount and was awarded a handful of those coveted scholarships that uh, people hope and dream for, beginning with the Moorhead Scholarship to attend UNC Chapel Hill, where she stayed on for medical school. She is an OBGYN practicing for the last 15 years at Novant Health Woman Care, and is just a lion heart in every sense of the word, so genuine. Okay, welcome, Pam. Hi, Lou, thank you for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to see your face um, after all this time. Uh, you know, I'm glad to see that you and the team are doing well. Yes, yes, and let me ask you, I mean, first and foremost are you and your loved ones safe I, I know that you and your husband mark have three kids and i think two of them are twins aren't they yes I, we've been blessed i'd say that we have um, stayed safe during COVID. um my husband is a dentist and if you read the graphs dentists and dental hygienists were some of the highest risk from an exposure standpoint um, so we've had our deal of, of, of stressful times this past year um, my kids, uh, one was my youngest son is 12 miles. He's the one I described as the wild card. He's the one that teaches us to live life and value happiness in everything we do. Wow. And, uh, he's been in school in person the whole time and has done well. And, um, I do have 15 year old boy, girl twins. They will be 16 in a couple months. And, um, they too, they thrived. I, I've been really lucky. They all learn differently. And so we've been able to adapt um, to make sure that they didn't lose ground, but it really did point out, I mean, this last year pointed out how they are individuals and there was not a one size fits all to how we approach their mental well-being, their academic and scholastic achievement, our family time. Um, so I can definitely say we've been blessed and we're all doing well. Thank you for asking. You bet, you bet. You're a great person to ask this. Uh, how has the pandemic changed the human side of healthcare? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so first, let's think about, I mean, healthcare is about people. And as I mentioned, even with my own family, we are individuals who are complex. We all have different needs and we all show up with various um, experiences. Um, that are unique. 
And I think that there have been times, one of the things that COVID has really helped us all do or made us do is to stop and pause and to understand and see those nuances. We often pass each other, we see our patients and we make assumptions, you know, unless they say otherwise, I assume I have some assumptions in my head that things must be going well and I just need to do X. And I think with COVID, it realized, made us realize that we ourselves were vulnerable our patients are vulnerable, we have complex needs, and that we need to see each and every person as the individual they are, if we're going to help them achieve optimal health and wellness. And I, I just think that came out in COVID because even whether it was, uh, everyone approached it differently. We all had a different perspective on what this pandemic was, how much should we be doing? How do I feel about this policy? Um, what do I want to do with my activity? How does this impact my health and my family? And so um, I really think that, you know, it, it, it helped us to, to think through how to build trust with our patients, because I feel like the only way we make progress with improving the health of our patients and our communities is we have their trust, we have their interest at heart, and we build those relationships. And that's what healthcare is about. You only get that relationship if you truly value people as individuals. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you have always talked about starting from gratitude and that relationships were really where we would transform the healthcare, the future of healthcare. Talk a little bit about that. Well, it's that, you know, um, one of the, the struggles I think we've had with healthcare over time is um, that the system is complex and it's not between the payer, the way the payers kind of um, set things up, the way our traditional systems are set up, it's easy for all of us, both the physicians and APPs and the patients to feel like cogs in a wheel. And that's not, that's not, it, it may work when things are going well, but when things start to break down and you're experiencing healthcare, you have specific needs, you need someone who can help you navigate and see you for the person that you are. So it goes back to that trust. Like, you know, I, I, we engage with our teams and we have a, a lot of work we do around the human experience, the patient experience and the team member experience. Because to us, we know that if we have that trust with our patients, they know that we have their best interests at heart, that we work together as a team. So we value each other. We work together as a team to help get our patients the care that they need. And we know that when patients feel that, they, that compassion that we have for them, the outcomes are better. There are lots of studies that show that compassionate care leads to better outcomes because patients are more likely to, to listen and, and say, I, I agree, I trust that, I'm going to do that, I'm going to follow up, uh, whatever it is. And so we ultimately know that outcomes and everything that we hope to achieve from a wellness perspective are better if we have trust and relationships. And I think we only get that through a personalized human touch, high human touch um, um, uh, model. Yeah. You know, so many of us have um, fallen back in love, I believe, with the frontline workers and the people who take care of us in the emergency rooms and the folks who have tended to people who had to perish in ICUs without their loved ones near. Does, do physicians and nurses feel uh, appreciated right now as human beings for the, 
for what they have been doing to take care of us over this last unthinkable year plus? Absolutely. I mean, I, I can tell you that, well, first, our teams and healthcare teams across this nation and internationally have shown up and, and, and truly shown what is at our core, which is the sense of mission and purpose to take care of people and, um, and our communities. That was really, really, I'd say something powerful for those of us who are caretakers in, in any way. That is why many of us go into healthcare because we have that sense of mission. We want to help others. And I think that it never, we never were able to show that more than we were in COVID. And I think it helped that we were able to do it as a team. So when we saw our teams pulling together a year ago, I mean, I think it was April, um, April last year where we had shut down the care. We didn't know about our mass situation. We just, you know, patients were um, being admitted, maybe not the high levels like we had in January, but it was a little bit of how do we keep our teams safe? And, and that reality of healthcare being a industry where we actually can be exposed to things that can impact us personally. It's an occupational hazard um, that, you know, it became scary, but we saw our teams pull together we saw our teams kind of rise to the occasion and say, what do I need to do to take care of these patients and our communities? And then we saw our community stepping in. I mean, we had, we were overwhelmed with the request for, can I make masks for you? Can we make face shields for you? People dropped off um, baskets of, of food, businesses dropped off meals and snacks for our teams. It And the police and fire departments came through and they did parades around our hospital facilities. And I'd say it's that this, it was those constant pick-me-ups that helped us get through. I mean, and, and it really was, um, it, show, it showed that it wasn't for naught. You know, sometimes I think that we get into this kind of, we can get into a little bit of a um, uh, transactional relationship with each other just in life. And I feel like COVID really did, if there was any silver lining from a healthcare perspective, it really did show our, our teams the value they bring to the community. And I do believe now more than ever, we have the trust of our communities and we aim to keep it. Yeah. You know, I, I always love working with physicians. We have a, a group come in, as you know, and uh, go through a series of stories and storytelling. And I'm so touched by the fundamental drive that pulls a person into healthcare and medicine and the, the most cherished moments are with patients and the triumphs are with helping someone overcome and the greatest losses and soul-wrenching moments are those that don't make it. Um, we don't typically see that in, in our our folks in healthcare, our physicians and our nurses, do we? No, um, it is, um, it is it's, it's tough work. And I think that sometimes if you're, when you're wealthy and you're, you're I mean, not wealthy, when you're well and healthy, um, your engagement with the healthcare team looks very different than when you're in a vulnerable period. And, um, and our teams show up differently, I think, depending on that acuity. And I'd say as a OBGYN, I say we have the best of the best. There's nothing like being part of a birth, right? You're part of the beginning of new life. It's a, it's a, it's a moment that the parents remember. You go to Costco and people stop you and they can't, they're excited because you delivered this baby. 
but it's also the worst of the worst to have a bad outcome with a new mom or a new baby or pregnancy in general can be devastating. And so, you know, I think that um, this is this is something that we obviously deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. We train ourselves to be able to deal with the complexity and compartmentalize a little bit of the good and the bad, you know, the ups and the downs. Um, but, you know, it's not for everyone. And I think that it, it is, we, I truly cherish that healthcare is a calling for most people um, because we have our ups and downs when it comes to, you know, insurances and other things and it changes constantly. And in the end, if your heart's not in it, then I think you struggle. struggle. Yeah. Well, as we certainly are bound to do in turning to COVID, I have a question in the chat for you, mm -hmm. which is what do you say to someone who is resistant to getting the vaccine because of something they um, heard online or fear that, was, fear that it was developed too quickly? So specifically addressing the, um, that concern about it being developed too quickly, I'll, I'll go into that, but first I'd say, whenever we're engaging people around the vaccine, it's important for us to understand where they're coming from. And we want to, like the, the messages that they've heard and ultimately what we want to align with on them is what do you want? You know, there, we've had people who have, uh, they're restaurant owners and they just want their restaurant back open and they're struggling they want it open. So they, they would like for us to, you know, snap our fingers and the pandemic go away. And it's just not a reality. So we have a little conversation around how are we going to get your restaurant open? Well, it's going to take that the activity goes down, that we aren't seeing people dying. How are we going to get there? It is only through this vaccine that we're going to get there. And so if too many people like you say, well, I don't have to opt into this, I can't guarantee your restaurant will be successful or we'll get it back open as quickly. But if we come together as a community and we value that this is about our communities reopening, about keeping our kids, getting our kids in school so they can be educated. It's about saving lives, whatever it is, touch on being able to see grandma. It's touching on those points that are really important to get down to an individualized message. And for people who are concerned about it being developed too quickly, part of it is that I, would, I don't wanna make it seem like for those of us who live in the medical world, we're used to the way medical technology and advancements happen. And most people don't pay attention to that. You know, a medicine comes out and it's better than the next one. They may ask a few questions, but they don't read the scientific data and the trials and understand how this was done compared to what this, how this other medicine was done. And so I think a little bit of this is that, you know, we're comfortable because we understand the work that was happening behind the scenes to have this technology, the way this technology, this mRNA, especially um, those vectors, were developed even for other vaccines that have been used. It was just novel for now being at the right place at the right time for us to be able to quickly develop this vaccine. And I would tell you that many of us it was in January, February of last year when, when um, COVID was starting to really hit the US and people were saying, oh, it's, wait for the vaccine. We were like, oh, there's, well, how are we gonna get a vaccine that quickly? And then people started like saying, no, we have this. We think we can get it done. Um, we were all really, really happy to see and to go out and to understand ourselves more about what had already, what the foundation had been laid. So all I can say is that we, I trust the science and the, the, the teams that are there, um, the work that has been done, the data that we have to date, and, um, uh, and, and a little bit of how do we answer any other questions they have outside of just that technology part. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now to the mask dilemma, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, which, what can you set us straight on that? Because certainly we've heard that, you know, well, all of a sudden the CDC seemed to surprise us with relaxing guidelines and that individual business owners aren't ready to do that and that there's an overall blurred line and confusion going on. Set us straight. I have to say the CDC is in a tough spot, right? Um, This country wants to move forward. You know, people want to move forward and be able to resume a normal life. And yet we don't want to have people dying from, you know, any more people dying from the pandemic or additional surges. So I understand that they are balancing um, many priorities here. Um, I'd say that to be clear on the CDC mask guidelines, what they said is if you are fully vaccinated, which means two weeks from the second dose, if you had a two dose vaccine or two weeks from the first one dose vaccine, then you do not have to or feel the need to wear a mask um, indoors, outdoors, if you're around others, because the vaccine has been shown to be highly effective. Um, Now, and highly effective from causing severe hospitalizations and death, right? Doesn't mean that like none of the vaccines are 100% against you maybe contracting COVID, but not getting severe symptoms. Now, for those people who are unvaccinated, this does not apply. So if you have not gotten the vaccine, the recommendation is that you continue to mask. The problem is we are relying on honor code, you know, scouts honor or whatever to say, Am I in a room with people who are vaccinated and therefore not masking? Or am I in a room with people who are not masking because they just don't believe in masking and they haven't been vaccinated? If you're the vaccinated person, I would say, you can rest assured that you're still, even if you were exposed to someone unvaccinated or someone who had COVID, there's still a low chance that you would actually contract it, especially and and have anything severe. So you can have that reassurance. I just, we, we don't know a lot about some of the variants, we don't know about like, you know, um, uh, the longevity of some of the immunity yet. So what I've been telling people is, even if you are vaccinated, just use your best judgment. Where are you? How much of a risk is it if you're indoors and you're in a situation where you think that there's a lot more risk versus outdoors and you really have a lower risk? Do, how much do you know about the people you're around? Do you have children who are not vaccinated and they still need to protect themselves? So maybe you need to think about where you're going and where your children could be exposed. And I'd say for owners of businesses, it comes down to one, your staff, you know, do you need to protect your team? Because you don't want, you know, if your team's maybe not vaccinated or some of them are, some of them aren't, you want to protect them. You don't want your restaurant to be a place where people are suddenly getting sick or your team gets sick. And then you don't have a workforce, which we know we're all struggling with. So um, all that to say, it's not perfect by any means. It still allows for, now when I was out, I was interested Sunday, I went to Costco and I was like, let's see what it's gonna be like. Cause Costco specifically said, if you're vaccinated, you'll have to wear a mask. So I thought well, we'll be the wild, wild west in here. I think about 80, 85% of people were still masking. And I don't think that was because they weren't vaccinated. I think it's because it's comfortable. They feel better and they feel like they're protecting themselves. Yes, yes. There are, um, from time to time, stories that come out about long haulers and people Mm -hmm. who've experienced symptoms over a period of months and months. How much of a factor is that? Is that still, you know, something of an outlier condition or 
do you see much of that? We're seeing it. And I don't know if I have the statistics on what percentage of people are long haulers. Um, there are two dynamics here. One is the people who were symptomatic with COVID and then have residual, whether it's brain fog or um, fatigue or whatever. And, and we definitely are seeing it. Early in the vaccine efforts, they were actually showing that some of those people, their symptoms improved once they got vaccinated. So was it this rev up of their immunity that helped them to truly overcome it? We're not sure, there's, we're still looking for more data on that. Um, so, it, and it's not anything where there's a definite treatment, it's more supportive for whatever symptoms the person has. So if you have brain fog or if you're having some shortness of breath, we assess, make sure there's nothing bigger going on. And then we make sure that you have what you need to control those symptoms, but there's not a fix. There's not a medication or something necessarily fix it. So once again, we don't wanna contract COVID and be that person who gets that long hauler syndrome. The other thing that's been coming out more recently is there's a um, COVID we know increases this inflammatory response in your body. And we're seeing an increase in diagnoses in children and in adults, even those who were either very minimally symptomatic. So this isn't tied to, I had almost died from COVID and now I have this stuff. This is, I just got COVID and increased risk of, um, you know, we said increased diagnoses of diabetes um, and other autoimmune type of um, disorders. Will they be, is it a temporary state? Is it longer lasting? That we don't know, it'll take time. But that's concerning, especially as we think about children and how early they are in life to be able to be developing these new um, autoimmune or other disorders. Yeah. We have a question for you about building trust in the way that we have received communication from physicians and healthcare in the past, and that it's often been complex, uh, just the overall communication. We've um, perhaps felt uh, on the outside of really understanding. And if you see uh, going forward that healthcare might lean toward a clearer way of communicating to patients and their families, is there, yeah. after what we've been through, a, a desire to do that? Absolutely. And I'd say it's, it's complex. I mean, we deal with this. We, we've been tackling this in many ways where we have, um, we committed to a um, uh, teach back kind of philosophy where I explain to you the why, what is happening, why is it important for you to do what, what that looks like. And then I ask you to explain back to me, what did you hear to make sure that you understand it. Um, I'll apologize for the noise. And um, they, uh, it's really phenomenal to really then be able to say, if you're explaining this to your partner, your, you know, your, your son, your daughter, tell me what you're gonna tell them that you just heard. Now, many people need it in writing. And so what we've also incentivized for our, or not incentivized, but really promoted for our teams is to really put down in the, after we call it after visit summary, the note section, what is it that I just told you that you can then refer back to if you have information? How do we, we have um, lots of resources to be able to send people to either websites or to actually print off information about things that they need to know. Um, we, we looked at a lot of these and I say none of them are perfect. We have to think about it from a health literacy perspective. Some people don't wanna read it. They need to like see a video. 
Um, and, and so as a health system, we're investing more and more. We have that luxury of being able to invest in those things. You have to understand smaller practices or um, uh, some may not be able to provide those same level of resources. And there are a lot of resources out on the web that we actually want to target people to the right ones. And so there's a lot of work around this, I'd say, going on. And we absolutely want to commit to making sure when you leave that you feel empowered to make sure that you have the information you need. And part of that's advocacy on the patient part, that patients can speak up and say, can you give me something in writing? Or where can I go get more information about this? Or did you put that in my note just to be sure that they have what they need? Um, and I, I would hope that most physicians and APPs would value that and respond to that and get people what they need. And we're trying to hardwire that as much as we can because we see it in our survey responses that people say, um, you know, did uh, I get um, enough information or education about what's happening with me? And people may love their provider, but that's the one thing that maybe shows up that we have an area for opportunity for improvement. Um, so we're committed to that. And I'd say it's going to look different depending on it's easier for certain things that we see more commonly. It's easier for um, people who have a personality where they do it already, they go the extra mile, um, but we continue to chip away at it to make sure it's a it's hardwired and consistent experience for our patients. Yeah. Well, I know you and I have talked about uh, the love you have for your practice and certainly you've been drawn into leadership now uh, a, a very, uh, I can imagine an exorbitant amount of time uh, you spend now in leadership, but tell us, you know, what is, what makes your work meaningful? What is uh, the most important thing? Why are you as passionate as you are leading a pretty complex schedule now? Uh, what keeps you going? What makes your work so important? Well, I think to understand that a little bit, I won't get into a lot of it, but a little bit has to go back to my why. And my why is very much about my sense of community. Um, I come from Eastern North Carolina, you mentioned. I have a strong sense of community or village or tribe or whatever you wanna to refer to. Um, my grandparents, my parents, everything was about take care of each other and that we thrive together. And so um, when I, my dad had leukemia and that's what drove me to healthcare, I was just seeing his experience. And um, there's something like when I mentioned a calling, I love taking care of my patients because I love the impact I have on them. And so I start my, mon my, my weeks on Mondays with clinic because I get to ground myself and seeing my patients and, and taking care of them and seeing the impact I can have on them individually, the investment I'm making and, and being there for them. But I often tell them they get, I get more from them than they get from me because truly the relationships we built, I feel like that's, I, I value that because I've done that with my patients. It's priceless for me. They teach me a lot about humanity, about reality. Um, and then I get to leave there and go out and say, how can I impact the world and this community in a greater setting, a bigger setting in my administrative world? So um, a lot of it comes back to people and my sense of community and commitment to our community. Yeah. Well, you are a bright light and I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed being with you. I know everybody in the house has as well. I can't help but think that just more rich conversation on a personal level like this uh, does so much to clear any kind of boundary between us. And as uh, 
folks are writing, thank you, you're so likable, and you are as genuine as they come. I, I don't know anybody more down to earth. Sometimes I think we're intimidated by uh, physicians and, and you're just good people. So let me real quickly say uh, next up on June 3rd is uh, our guest is our friend Kathy Izzard, who I think most of you know, and she's going to tell us about her latest and third book, The Last Ordinary Hour, um, really provocative title there. I want to say a shout out to the Interact family, Porter Metzler, Michael Samet, Jess Barilla, Susie Adams, and Patrick Sheehan is in Colorado, I know. But once again, a big hug and, and a warm thank you, Pam, for being with us today. It was great being with you, Lou, and I look forward to seeing you in lots of settings coming forward. So, oh, okay, thanks. Thank Bye, you. everybody. <laughs>